Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Did you read with Tim Montgomery? Welcome to the latest edition of the Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery, editor of the Times Opinion Pages, and this week I'm joined by Roger Boys, Libby Purvis and Matthew Said. Robert Mugabe, Crazy Bob of Zimbabwe, will be among those celebrating Mandela's life in South Africa this week. And he will be given a friendly hand by many African leaders who see him as the true hero of the continent. African leaders need to understand the Mandela lessons. One term, rather than lifelong presidencies, the building of institutional justice, global partnerships to tackle global problems like AIDS and malaria. George Osborne says that today's 20-somethings must work until they're 70, but his successors ought explicitly to exempt some jobs. Not everybody has a desk, not everybody is indoors all the time. There are still heavy sacks and long walks and scrubbing and ladders and danger, and manual workers' bodies just wear out. They ache. By 65, they are more than entitled to stop doing it and draw a pension. Let Beth Warren take her time in deciding whether she wants to use her late husband's sperm to have a baby. He gave his consent for his sperm to be used before his death, and she wants a little time to grieve before making a decision. We are far too paternalistic on medical ethics. From designer babies to markets for organs, we need to loosen up. Well, thank you very much. Roger, boys, we'll come to your topic first. And this week is a festival of celebrating an extraordinary life in Nelson Mandela. But in your uh, chosen subject for us, you wonder whether there's a bit of hypocrisy in particularly some of the African leaders in that they're celebrating a man like Mandela, but actually the person they really like is Zimbabwe's Robert Mugabe. They love the way that he has uh, ignored the values of the West, ignored the West leadership and in many ways is such a different figure from Mandela. So who who is the true face of Africa now? Is it Mugabe or is it Mandela? Well, 
Yes, that's the question, isn't it? Whether how universal the, the Mandela message is, whether it's simply a, a model for good governance everywhere and uh, of human qualities and, and graceful leadership, or whether he has actually something specific to say about Africa, which really is the worst governed continent. Uh, I mean, even... Getting, getting it, better, though. There are some increasing bright spots across the continent Well, now. you'll notice that there's Mo Ibrahim has this uh, uh, good governance, African Good Governance League every year, and for five years now he's not been able to give a prize. It's five million dollars yeah <laughs> so it's worth trying for yeah. you know and no one's been able to win it and no one no one's been seen fit to win it and i, I think that's still the case there are little pockets of of uh, places that you know that are being more or less well governed one of which i wouldn't i, I mean i wouldn't actually include an anc led uh, south africa mm-hmm. even uh, amongst that and the, one of the questions of course is whether the anc will um, will start to fall apart now um, now after mandela has gone but yes sorry to the concrete question uh, yes, I mean, when Robert Mugabe dies, I think the whole continent will be out there saying he's the man who defied the white man and mm. uh, in a way that, that Nelson didn't. We won't have Obama and Cameron and European leaders attending Mugabe's funeral. No, <laughs> no, I don't think so. No. I don't think. Um, Libby Purvis. I think it's it's absolutely right what you're saying. The the cult of the big man in Africa, you know, the the, the big. It's, we, we all know that it's lousy. We all know there's some lousy leaderships, and that even promisingly good leaderships seem to turn sour under this under this uh, autocratic, arrogant, swaggery. I'm sorry to say, male macho mm. culture, and we see this happen again and again. And I think it is good. I mean, one of the joys of the whole business of Mandela and thinking about Mandela's as we are around the time of his death is that, you know, we, we are able to hold up this amazing guy as a as a, as a model. And, and not feel vaguely sort of post-colonial racist for criticising any other African leaders, because we can say, hang on, there have been good African leaders. Is it OK, even though he was a great leader, and I think we're right in a large sense to eulogise him, is it not OK to say that Mandela was not perfect? He was not a specimen of pure virtue. In his private life, he was adulterous. Uh, His first wife alleged that he beat her violently. He endorsed uh, terrorism. And even though we feel that that is legitimate, I don't think we should skirt around it. I think there is a a danger at times that we provide a secular saintdom and no man and no woman is utterly perfect. I think we need a a little bit more perspective, not not just with Mandela, but with, with other people who have passed away and who we tend to... Uh, we tend to confer this secular. Thing. I thought we were all about to agree, but you, I think you just changed that, Matthew. Uh, Libby, these work better when we disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Libby Pavis. Of course, nobody's perfect. Of course, he isn't perfect. But he did this one remarkable thing. I mean, I lived in South Africa as a young teenager, and I remember apartheid and how it felt, and how emotionally how it felt, and how I was terrified when I left that my dad wouldn't be able to leave nine months later. You know, it was 20 years late that it all happened. It felt like a powder keg. I thought the whites would be slaughtered. Absolutely. Mm. And Mandela came out saying, let us all work together. That's an astonishing thing. That makes up for any amount of adultery. Um, Roger Boys. Well, uh, I'm rather, like Libby, I'm rather pro-adultery. Um, in the <laughs> <laughs> Have you told your wife? <laughs> no, um, no, it's, uh, yes. I mean, the thing about Mandela is, of course, that he transcended the tribal and, 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 these, and these structures. And that's why people are eulogizing. But uh, I must say that one shouldn't 
just treat him as a as a as a saint or a, or a martyr or a miracle, um, but uh, rather as a, a, a rather savvy, smart politician who smelled the weakness of the other side, even when he was in his prison cell. And as uh, and the other side of that is that we should also honor F. W. de Klerk uh, because he mm-hmm. it takes bravery to surrender power. Maybe it takes more bravery to surrender power. Than, than actually Mandela exhibited. Uh, one thing that um, Danny Finkelstein wrote in his um, Saturday notebook was, and this comes back to you, uh, Matthew Saeed, is that actually Nelson Mandela did actually sometimes give boring speeches. You know, he was forgetful. He didn't tip waiters very much. <laughs> you know, but it, and, it, and it wasn't as something in his ordinariness. You know, he was an ordinary man like the rest of us, ordinary person like the rest of us with flaws, but he was able to achieve the greatness in the in the area of life where we needed him to be great. Right, it's awful that he didn't give tips. Fifty um, percent <laughs> yeah. is, is, is a minimum. But he he wasn't a great he wasn't a great orator. But he mm. was great for the iconic gesture. He understood the power of imagery, and I think that was exemplified very well in the Rugby World Cup final, mm. where he wore the symbol of Africana pride uh, when South Africa won that that very prestigious trophy. But I think the other thing that strikes me about the response to Mandela's death is how white Western populations around the world have embraced this great leader who vanquished the iniquity of apartheid without properly seeing what happened in South Africa within the arc of Western history. I mean, let's not forget Jim Crow segregation existed in the United States into the mid-60s. Mm-hmm. That was de facto regional apartheid. Yeah. Uh, our race relations laws didn't change until Harold Wilson. My father lived under the iniquity of racism in this country with white uh, people still alive today who are members of the Monday Club, many conservative MPs. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to, instead of seeing him as this, this messianic figure who arrived from on high to sort out the South Africans. We need to see what happened there in the wider context of how racism has defined Western civilization for many centuries. Final question to you, uh, Libby, before we move on, is Matthew Paris wrote um, a very good piece um, on Saturday. And for all those people listening, by the way, to this podcast who are Times subscribers, all of the articles we discuss can be read at thetimes.co.uk slash comment central, Libby's article, Matthew's article. Um, Matthew said, actually, has South Africa more or less just been frozen? Did he stop South Africa descending into the violence that we feared? But actually, for a lot of black South Africans, life still is absolutely miserable. And actually, is a reckoning not been avoided, but just postponed? I hope that the reckoning will be more the kind of social and less violent reckoning that we get and hope for in other countries. I just think that Mandela prevented a terrible, terrible uprising. And de Klerk also, that's a very good point. We should acknowledge de Klerk that they prevented something which could have been really terrible because if you have seen close up how it used to be, how, I mean, yes, there's huge black poverty in in South Africa and this is terrible. There's high crime rates and so on. But there is not that absolute quashing of the very humanity of people, the, the unvaluing. That, that was the horror of it. And that's, that's gone. And so we hope that socially they can develop. OK, well, we must move on to our second topic, which is your topic, Libby Purvis. And I don't know whether I'm speaking for everybody in this podcast studio, but I think we all quite enjoy our work. And so when George Osborne says we have to work till we're 70, it perhaps doesn't frighten us quite so much. But 
your point is if you have a back-breaking job, a manually demanding job, a job that you do not enjoy, the thought of not being able to collect your state pension until your uh, beginning of your eighth decade is quite a horrible thought. Yes, it's the, it's the sheer physicality of it. You sometimes think that when politicians and journalists talk about work and jobs, they cover a really narrow spectrum. They cover offices and call centres or maybe people working inside in hospitals who don't do any of the very heavy stuff like physiotherapy, dragging people around. That's a heavy manual job. And so, uh, you know, oh, they say, oh, good heavens, you know, 60 is the new 40 and everyone can go on working. Of course you can and I can. We're indoors. It's warm. We sit and type. We sit at screens. You know, they're... People wear out. There are still ladders and, and, and scrubbing and heavy manual work and people's knees go and they get tired and worn down and they just deserve to be able to retire at 60, 65, whatever they, they should be, 65, say. And, of course, you can say, well, of course, they can always claim invalidity. Why should you be humiliated mm. by claiming invalidity when you've been carting sacks around on a farm all your life till now and you're just entitled to a few years of, you know, being able to sort of walk around and sit on the parish council? Uh, Ma- Matthew, so do, you, do you agree with this? Because I would certainly agree with half of what Libby says in the sense is that people who are doing manual work have a less interesting life potentially than a sports writer a sports writer for the times like your, yourself, award-winning sports writer for the times like yourself. But actually, we are actually healthier though. Most of yeah. us are actually healthier. So there is, even for manual workers, people doing back-breaking work, there is a case still for raising um, the retirement age. Yes, and one has to come up with a reasonable estimate based on how healthy people are likely to be uh, when the relevant time comes. The the other thing that worries me a great deal about the uh, proposal that Libby has brilliantly uh, articulated is that it will create presumably a vast bureaucracy to figure out which jobs are and are not uh, sufficiently manual to enable people to stop rather earlier. And people will start saying, well, actually, you know, I was working at the Times doing my sports riding, but my goodness, my laptop was heavy. And there'll be, there'll be, all, of, there'll be all of these caveats. And what worries me about what the welfare state in general is the vast bureaucracy that is required to... Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Make it work, and we should be trying to get away from all that. Look, before I bring Roger in, you're desperate to come back doesn't, on that, Libby. It doesn't have to be a vast bureaucracy. You can simply point out, to your, you can get from your GP a note saying, not invalidity, but pensionable. That's it. Um, have to be not, not 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 a GP. I think we've seen the GP yeah. person relationship is corrupted. But an independent well, assessor. An, well, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah, independent assessors, layers and layers and layers. Most GPs are not actually that corrupt, to be honest. No, I think I think it could be soft far more rather simple. than corrupt. <laughs> and, and another thing, another thing. I mean, do you really want a septuagenarian surgeon? with trembling hands grobbling around in your chest cavity. I, I, mean, think, I, think, I, th- we I think we know what the answer well. to, to that one is. Roger Boyce is now waving <laughs> his hand, desperate to come in. Well, uh, I d- well, one thing I do want is septuagenarian diplomats. Now they have to retire compulsorily at 60, and we're, wa- we're throwing away a fantastic amount of knowledge and expertise. So I, I certainly don't want you know, that kind of uh, terrible wastage uh, of brains. As for the physicality of it well Matthew you know who's the most physical person in the studio at the moment is excuse me I is, cycle to work every morning <laughs> yeah but he writes about <laughs> uh, is right I suppose and, and my impression was always that uh, for example coal miners retired earlier well, now, now we've solved the problem by closing our coal mining industry of course but but they used to retire at 45 soldiers still retire relatively I mean, certainly my father retired uh, unusually early Industry by industry, we could set separate standards. That's to say, industries that involve uh, manual physical power can set their own criteria. And I think GPs have a say, as Libby says. I think GPs do have a say. I mean, if, if you've got the first signs of dementia, then frankly, now's the time to give up. And today in the newspaper, we've declared that it's a national epidemic or something, mm. or a plague or, or something, which, of course, is ridiculous. In Tuesday's paper, yeah. Um, Tuesday's paper. Li- Libby, yeah. The, the basic point, though, here is, and whatever the merits of your specific concern for blue-collar workers, if you like, is that we do need to do something about this ballooning pensions bill. And this move by George Osmond will save £500 billion over the next few decades. And we are living longer and we cannot afford for a a smaller working population to pay for all the retirees. You you accept that, don't you? Of course, I absolutely accept that. My my dad, I was interested in what you said about diplomats. My dad had to retire before he really wanted to because he was a diplomat. And of course, you've got time and a half for hot countries so that he he actually was was thrown out earlier than he would have wanted to be. Maybe we need a twinning system, Roger, in which uh, a bricklayer and a diplomat can apply to twin themselves. The bricklayer (laughs) can knock off early diplomat can carry on till 80 we should have a, have a yeah, there's a website we could have an inter- internet twinning system you know, I wish to stop work because I am very tired you know anyone want to carry on do you know how many diplomats we have in Britain and how many bricklayers we have probably near the same number might be the floor in the, uh, <laughs> in the, in the system. This, this idea that both of you have said I think is so profound the extraordinary experience the domain knowledge that is being wasted when we ask people Mm. to be pensioned Mm. off too early. I mean, my very strong view is that experience and domain knowledge is the strongest predictor of expertise in virtually any field. And we often think we can parachute new people in, and with the power of that abstract reasoning, they will be able to make efficient decisions. This has been contradicted by 30 years of research in cognitive psychology, and I think it's, it's a terrible tragedy that brilliant diplomats have been forced to stop before they wanted to, and we've lost that wealth of experience. 
Well, or, we were or brilliant journalists, I might say. And, and, or, and, and foreign correspondents. Yes. Brilliant journalists, including my company here today. We must move on to our third topic, which is uh, the topic that you suggested for us, Matthew uh, Saeed. And um, you've talked uh, at the top of the uh, podcast about this uh, lady, Beth Warren, who wants time to be able to decide whether her, uh, she can use her late husband's sperm when the authorities uh, potentially wanted to dispose of it early in that. But you, you brought it into a wider challenge to us that, on medical ethics. You wrote a, a thunderer column for the Times recently when you said that those people that want to sell their kidneys, their spare kidney, so that people who are desperate for a transplant can have one, should be able to to do so. Why are we, um, in your opinion, so hung up about these kinds of issues? I think that's right. I think we're far too conservative in the way we think about medical ethics and genetic engineering in general. I think when it comes to ethics, it's quite a simple thing. If there is a harm that is going to be done to a particular person or to society, that's a good reason not to do something. What strikes me, however, when it comes to genes and organs is we often don't want to do it because it just seems a bit weird or freakish or futuristic. We're squeamish. That is not a legitimate moral argument. And if, for example, a parent who's had two or three boys decides that you know, she and her husband want to have a girl uh, for balancing, it seems to me they should be perfectly entitled. It isn't, it, it, isn't, it isn't that way around, though, is it? It's uh, particularly in certain communities, it's, they don't want boys and they, they don't want girls and they want boys. And you have this imbalanced population growing up particularly outside of Britain in parts of Asia. That's right. And, where and, and, you have gender side effectively. Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely right. And in Indian families, there is a strong desire to have boys because mm. if family have girls, there is a social institution where you have to provide a dowry. And so it is very expensive for, for, for poor families to have a disproportionate number of girls, mm. in which case the appropriate political intervention is to go against that particular social institution. But in liberal Western democracies, if the state wants to prevent families freely choosing to do something, they have to identify a specific harm, either to the individual or to society. I don't think it is sustainable to say that there would be a harm in this situation in this country. But I think it's not just that. Stem cell research, the way we think about, for example, conferring immunity on people by introducing foreign DNA, all of these things, if they can make lives go better, reduce suffering, it seems to me that there is a moral imperative to do them. And yet, you know, from the Bush administration, who had absurd uh, federal restrictions on funding for stem cell research, to many other uh, Western societies, we're far too conservative. Roger, you're familiar, Roger Boys, you're familiar with Poland, a country that is very conservative on these sorts of issues. Uh, where, where should we be as, as a liberal country, close to America or Poland, or are we getting it about right? Or do you agree with Matthew, we need to be much more liberal? Well, I worry about the, the, the aspect, I worry about two aspects of Matthew's argument. One is that um, by saying we should be more liberal on medical ethics, we're actually abandoning the ethical argument altogether. Um, and in a way, he's saying, well, ethics doesn't actually really belong to this argument. Uh, and I worry about that. And of course, Con conservative Catholic countries in particular are, are very... Um, Is he saying ethics don't matter or just a different kind of ethics? Well, I mean, you can't say, uh, let's be more uh, flexible on the ethics. No, um, I'm, I'm saying that uh, at the moment we're using invalid ethical arguments in the domain of medical advance 
In, in other words, we will say oh, we don't want to do that because it's a bit, ugh, it's a bit weird. It's a bit, it's a bit odd. It's no, but you're, but you're suggesting a la carte. That's not a valid um, moral argument. Uh, you're suggesting a la carte kind of solutions. I mean, here, in the case of Beth Warren, you're saying, well, you know, she shouldn't decide when to use the sperm of her, of her husband. I mean, that's why. Why, why is that not? Why does that not link up to some universal question? I'm, I'm, it's not a consume. You're consumerizing uh, the process of giving. Birth. Well, so before bringing Libya in, and you had a second objection. I had a second, which was uh, organized crime. I, I remember going a few years back now, going to a village in Moldova where where uh, twenty people had sold their kidneys because someone had come along and basically said, "We will pay you five thousand dollars, which was an enormous amount of money for them for one of your kidneys." And, of course, it wrecked um, – well, it, of course, impaired their health. That was part of their uh, – part of the deal, I suppose. But um, it also completely destroyed the moral fabric of this community. You know, they went out and bought a car, got drunk and, and smashed into a tree. You know, it was that – you know, they, they would sell their kidney to buy a roof uh, and then suddenly – Was that, is that partly, though, because it wasn't black market? That it was, it was There's black, a black market, market. Not well, you have to reg- Well, well then you have to regulate. I suppose Matthew would say, well, OK, we should get institutional yeah. regulation and, and that would solve that problem. But I'm not sure that it really does. I think that there's an awful huge black dimension uh, okay. to, to – Libby, Matthew, quickly, yeah. Black markets exist where the free market is curtailed. The reason there is a black market in organs in Moldova and across Asia where people are manipulated by agents and give their consent to give organs without proper information is because we don't have properly regulated markets. And the dubious brokers who are taking huge commissions, they would disappear Patients would be able to give their decisions under informed consent. And I, I do think that there's something paternalistic about the idea that if poor people make an informed choice to sell their kidney because they're so hard up in order to buy things for their family, we can second guess their purchases. You know, we don't think that they should go and buy a car. That should be up to them. Libby Purvis. I, I think that's disgusting, actually. I think that's the <laughs> ultimate conservatism, the ultimate capitalism. I don't think that poor people should be in any way pressured even financially to have their vital organs taken away there's no such thing as a spare kidney anyway you actually we've been given two for a damn good reason which is that something might go wrong with one of them Um, however I'm absolutely with you about Beth Warren I think she should be given time I think that's just a kind of a regulation on how long sperm can be kept and as long as there is no risk to this sperm deteriorating seriously and and, she would be able to sort of discuss that I think you're absolutely right there but I don't think I think yes a a certain amount of of liberalisation stem cell research and all the rest of it is fine and you're absolutely right that the yuck factor you know the ooh it's weird factor is is no way to judge things but I think to move towards an unregulated market in human organs and so on is a really dangerous thing Libby let me ask you a question you said that you think it's bad for poor people to be pressured into giving up an organ in return for money that pressure will exist with or without a regulated market. If there's no regulated market, that pressure will be uh, conferred by a black market where people will be taking huge commissions. 
the other thing that we haven't as, even met. As the time was exposed in Sri Lanka, not so long ago. Precisely. And the other thing, on a front page story which was in the public interest, the, the other thing that's worth remembering is there are people suffering and dying in large numbers across the Western world because there is an inadequate supply of these organs. So for me, it's a win-win. It is not manipulating the poor. It is ensuring they are not manipulated by dubious brokers. And it's helping those people who are dying in large numbers who otherwise would not. On that controversial note, and Roger and Libby are both dying to respond, <laughs> so we are going to have to stop the podcast because we've run out of time. We often end this way with um, topics. We're just scratching the surface, and um, that's why at least we meet once a week to uh, keep revisiting uh, these important issues. That's all for today. Can I thank Matthew, Roger and Libby very much and also uh, my producer, David McGuire. All of the articles that we've mentioned today um, can be found at thetimes.co.uk slash comment central. And most of all, thank you to you for listening. Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting and a sprinkle of top tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.